The importance of decentralized storage and compute has not really caught the attention of the mainstream yet, but under the surface, it's becoming an absolutely huge movement as people realize that Amazon Web Services, Google, and Microsoft control effectively all of the cloud data and storage in the world. Just like with Bitcoin decentralizing money, it's essential that we decentralize data. I spoke with Colin Everin. He is the ecosystem lead for Filecoin at Protocol Labs and talked about why this is so essential and what they're building. That's dope. That's dope. I read recently that Filecoin is at a meaningful percentage of the capacity of Amazon Web Services at this point. Can you talk about what percentage it is at getting to the full capacity of Amazon Web Services and what's, I guess, being stored and, and built right now using your, your platform? Totally, yeah. So uh, within the Web3 space, let's start there. Uh, Filecoin is now 99% of total data uh, capacity and about 96, 97% of total data stored, so utilization, and starting to become like the developer platform of choice. Um, for the Web2 space, when you think of AWS, it's really hard to get like actual data on what's going on over there. But we think we're somewhere in the 1% to 5% range um, of where AWS is. What we do know is... Um, we're at the point that if you combine AWS, Google, and Microsoft Azure in the first six years when they launched cloud services, we basically got there in the first year. And it took them six years in the early days till from like, I think, mid 2000s to 2012 or something. Um, we got there in about a year, which is pretty remarkable, right? And kind of gives you like, you know, an overview of like the crypto incentives and how powerful they are, just like, you know, the Bitcoin incentives. It, it, it's absolutely wild. Um, and it, it gives an opportunity, like what's important to remember is, you know, like, you know, we had like some banking scares over the last couple of weeks, but the data cloud storage market is even more consolidated than the banking market, right? Two thirds of all data in the cloud is stored by three providers, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. And so, and that's getting even more consolidated. They kind of combine, take about four points of share every year. And so if you zoom out to like five to 10 years from now, you know, we're going to be uniquely reliant on like one to three cloud storage providers. And I'm not sure that's like the right answer for the world's internet infrastructure, right? And so um, Filecoin is really trying to like put that on its head, enable like thousands of different service providers from all over the world to offer storage and retrieval and compute services and to be able to access it in a much more open way. And uh, we've seen like a lot of traction both within Web3 and Web2, uh, which is like super encouraging and happy, happy to go into some of that if, uh, if it's helpful. It, it is. I, first, I want to touch on why it would be so problematic to have all of that data on a few centralized uh, platforms and with a few centralized companies, because I don't think a lot of people still, even though they hear your privacy could be violated, you are the product, sort of all of these memes, but I don't think they understand how impactful it is that these few centralized services control everything. Totally. I think for one, I think like as a society, it, it, whether you believe and are a fan of like the big cloud storage fighters or not, it's good to have choice, right? Like we just don't want to be cornered where like one bank stores all of the world's financial assets. And similarly, I don't think you want to be in a world where one company stores all of like the, the world's, you know, uh, data as well. Um, but the specific like watchouts is, um, you know, control over your data, 
right? Um, you want to be able to make your own decisions on how your data is used, whether it's used to be monetized through ads or whatever it might be. And that's really, really hard to do in like a web two paradigm, very easy to do using cryptography and web three. Um, two, you want it to be verifiable. So when you, when you, right now we're trusting that a centralized party is storing your data. And if that goes wrong, we won't even know necessarily gives rise to things like, you know, data integrity or fake news and things like that as well. And so in the web three world, you have cryptographic proofs that like this data is being stored on a daily basis, on an hourly basis in a decentralized network. And then three, like, you know, let's say these companies want to jack up prices by 50% one day or not lower prices to be able to make them affordable for really important data sets that should live in the, in the cloud. Filecoin, as one example, is about less than 1% the cost of centralized cloud storage. And so it opens up huge new markets, even in the Web2 world, where like nonprofits or governments or universities that could otherwise not store really valuable data sets can now find a home from them in, in kind of like a Web3 network like Filecoin. We've also seen them go down. Right. And, totally. then, and when they do go down, you see half the internet go down with them. <laughs> it, exactly. And, um, you know, and to pull on that thread, there, there are certain regions where the entire internet can go down. You can just block an IP address to a centralized data center. And, you know, even if it's not like being reliant on a big cloud storage provider, the government could take control as well. We saw that in uh, Catalonia as an example. So Catalonia, I don't know if you're familiar with the situation, but they were trying to separate from Spain. They were hosting a referendum on, you know, their citizens voting on whether this should happen or not. Spain didn't want this to happen. And so the Spanish government blocked the IP address in a centralized way to kind of the data centers that were having all of those, all the information on how to vote and what to do, et cetera. And so the Catalonian government actually moved all their assets onto IPFS, which is kind of a decentralized storage network. And overnight, everyone had access to this again, right? And so even if the cloud storage providers are reliable and do they do what they say, et cetera, you're at risk of like various forms of censorship and failures. Um, and, you know, it's, it's maybe not obvious today, but if you fast forward 10 years when you're really reliant on a specific set of protocols and companies to store your data, I think it's pretty scary. But interestingly, a lot of Web3 and a lot of, I guess, self-proclaimed decentralized protocols and networks still run on Amazon Web Services or Google or Microsoft. So begs the question, is there really such thing as true decentralization in Web3 if you could still just be susceptible to a failure of your cloud service? Exactly. And we, we you know... Uh, about a year ago, we we're pretty scared about that, especially with NFTs. Like you're now kind of relying that these assets that you're paying lots of money for and are super valuable in different forms are now still stored on centralized servers. And so we spun up something called NFT.storage, where it would be super easy to store it in a decentralized way on the Filecoin network and content addressed through IPFS. And now there's 120 million NFTs that rely on that service in a decentralized way in a much more resilient fashion, right? Um, and I think the one thing that last week, uh, we had a big catalyst on March 14th, where we launched smart contracts and user pro programmability with the Filecoin virtual machine. This makes it extremely easy for Filecoin to integrate with any other blockchain. And so any other blockchain, let's say Ethereum can easily now write a smart contract, 
store, retrieve, and cause computation to happen over data using the Filecoin network. And so that that was possible in the pre-FEM era, but it was a little bit clunky. Now it becomes a lot more smooth. And so we're hoping most of Web3 can embrace decentralized storage and content addressing as, as some of the core primitives. So just for clarification, I guess, for the audience, when you talk about decentralized storage, I mean, I know that you have OpenSea and Magic Eden and all of these huge platforms everyone's heard of, but most people, when they buy an NFT, they put it in their wallet, they self-custody it. So what are you storing exactly for platforms like these? Yeah, it's the, it's the actual asset, right? So, um, you know, when you mint an NFT, you get like an address to an asset, but that actual asset is is physically stored in AWS or Google Cloud or one of these centralized providers if you're not careful, right? And so moving them on to content addressing with IPFS, kind of like standardizing what the addressing scheme of that would be. And so now you can store it on multiple different data centers around the world and with FVM in a perpetual way. Like for example, NFT storage now has this like automated contract that says, hey, store this NFT across, let's say, 20 data centers across three continents all over the world. And if any one of those data centers fails, the smart contract will automatically pick up and re renew that contract with another data center with those parameters. And so the, these things become much more resilient and self-healing uh, using smart contracts and, and a much more like, you know, resilient system. Really, really interesting. And so obviously, if you then have all of Web3 officially, effectively using Filecoin, is there any risk of the same sort of situation or is the decentralization of the network make it basically impossible to have those problems that you have with those centralized services? I think it becomes much more resilient, right? Um, you can have smart contracts that automatically renew specific, um, you know, contracts with different data centers around the world. There are now reputation scores where um, data centers can be ranked on how often, you know, they, they've been slashed for failure or, you know, uh, precludes, you know, retrievability or anything like that. And so it becomes like this, like really resilient network where you're spreading the risk over like many, many more parties um, and incentivizing it with crypto economics that make it super, super resilient. For example, for a data center, um, you know, let's say in Europe, they have to post Filecoin as collateral before they start storing information. And so there's like an economic penalty if they can't post their proof by the end of the day um, on, on whether that information is still there. And those data centers can earn 10 times more block rewards or Filecoin um, if they're storing verified deals versus if they're storing ones and zeros or just kind of like non-verified data. And so there are these strong, strong crypto economic incentives to make sure that the network is super resilient and, and store, you know, humanity's information in a way that's like super resilient for the long term. I mean, it's the very core ethos of crypto, right? Is that you can be, uh, you're incentivized to help the crowd even by being completely selfish. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's it's basically uh, all mirrors the original ethos of Bitcoin, which is why I love when these things are built and, and the core of decentralization there. So we talk about obviously NFTs being a huge, I'm sure that's a huge portion of what's being stored for now. How much of real world data can eventually be stored in a decentralized manner? All the things that still are dominating uh, Amazon Web Services and such. Totally. So the Filecoin network is... 
the largest decentralized storage network in the world. There are 3,800 storage provider systems plugged in across 44 countries with a capacity of 13 exabytes of data. And so that's enough to store like 4 billion high definition movies as like one analogy, okay. right? So it is absolutely massive. Um, and so uh, in terms of like how much is stored on it today, you know, beginning of last year, we were storing about 24 petabytes of information. That has 27X to over 650 petabytes today. So in a bear market, the usage has gone up 27 times over the last 14 months. And so, and, you know, that's only kind of like a fraction of the network that's available in terms of capacity. So we're excited to like get to the exabytes of, of onboarding um, there, right? And so, you know, that usage breaks down into, you know, a bunch of like Web3 applications, think like metaverse or gaming or personal storage or um, communication or NFTs as, as one example. Um, but all of that information within Web3 is actually pretty small. It's probably like a petabyte or two of total information. Um, the large volumes of data have started coming in from the Web2 world. And so this is really, really exciting because... You know, I originally got into the space because I thought, you know, we really wanted to accelerate the transition from Web 2 to Web 3. And so Filecoin, I think, is like one of those blockchains that is starting to catalyze that transition, getting Web 2, you know, traditional Web 2 companies storing their data and eventually getting compute over data to operate on that. Things like AI, machine learning, things like that as well. Uh, literally, my next question was going to be if you'd seen any negative effects from the bear market, if you'd seen a plateau. Sounds like there's been no bear market for you. I'm not talking about the price of the coin, obviously. I'm just talking about an adoption of the actual protocol and, and usage. Exactly. And that, that's kind of what we've been focused on is like, how do we bridge Web 2 and Web 3? Obviously, we want Web 3 to have unlimited access to storage, retrieval, and compute over data for you know all the assets that are stored within Web3. But how do we pull more enterprises and more consumers from the Web 2 world to like be able to truly verify their internet interactions in a way they've never done before. And so, you know, we're having companies move over not only for cost, but for verifiability. So for example, the Starling Lab um, is this like really interesting use case where they work with like different parties like the USC Shoah Foundation to store um, videos of genocide testimony in a way that's totally verifiable back to the person who said that. Um, they're also storing, you know, assets from Ukraine um, to basically fully verify that like, hey, these videos, these pictures, these information that's happening locally is actually what's going on versus the fake news that like Russia might be spreading or something like that, right? And so you can cryptic cryptographically verify back to the source of where these things were captured on a network like Filecoin in a way that you just can't do in the Web2 world. Um, and so, you know, we're noticing many universities, many nonprofits, um, many enterprises starting to take part in that kind of movement. That's so interesting. I, I interviewed at one point Sam Williams from Arweave and it kind of conceptually blew my mind as well, Sam Williams, uh, that you effectively are storing all of the data of the world. So it's not even just about what you're storing right now, but about literally capturing history that can be stored into perpetuity. I mean, it's basically right. exponential in what you'll be able to do, I assume. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, kind of like, as you start to cause computation to happen over the data, you can start to move like major applications like of the order of magnitude of like Twitter or YouTube or something like that to live on Web3 tech. 
And that's really the goal, right? Like that can't happen with the scalability issues that Web3 has today. But of the scale of the Filecoin network and with compute over data, like you can start to move major applications like that, not necessarily move them, but cause them to exist where you can serve billions of users and run like large scale kind of like AI or other types of computation over like the largest and most valuable data sets in an open way um, on Web3 tech. So I want to circle back to AI, which you brought up earlier. I use ChatGPT. I've been absolutely blown away by A, that zero to one moment, just using it in the first place, but how fast it's learned and what you can now do with it. So with that in mind, I have to imagine there's going to be exponential need with that exponential growth for storage and compute power. So how does Filecoin play into that? And I mean, is that a correct assumption? Totally, totally. So Filecoin basically enables not only the storage of data, but like compute over data on top of it. So things like AI, machine learning are like absolutely in the wheelhouse. Um, There are two main kind of like reasons why, you know, you'd want to use something like Filecoin, right? So first, for open data sets, um, you know, there's a much more public way of running many different types of AI training models. Like we think we're in the first out of the first inning, ChatGPT is going to be one of them, but like there's going to be many, many others. So if you take like a large public genomics or clinical trial data set and put it on Filecoin and make it public, now many different parties can run different kind of AI training models on that and get a whole bunch of differentiated insights on things like clinical research or drug discovery or things like that. And so it totally changes the game on how many different parties can participate in getting insights from AI. And then the structure of the Falcon network actually makes it like cheaper and easier to use um, for different types of decentralized compute. So you can run compute over data exactly where the data is versus having to move it out and you know into a separate container. You can start to parallelize compute over multiple data centers. And there are specific data centers within the Falcon network that are now getting specialized hardware so they can be like the AI specialist. And so you can start to take advantage of like spe- specialization as well. And so it's like kind of like openness, but also driving down cost of like what it would take to run compute networks like uh, like AI and ML and things like that. Is there enough compute right now in the world for what's coming with AI? I hear that that's sort of the expense and the potential barrier. Eventually, obviously, as technology does, it will come down in price. I'm sure that it'll be deflationary. But right now, with how fast this is coming, I mean, is there really enough uh, compute to to accommodate? Yeah, I, I don't think there is. Um, uh, and so we need to grow that, but there's like a couple of ways to grow it. It can like, again, centralize into a few different providers, similar to like the cloud storage market, where you're again, dependent on a few folks to run, you know, kind of like these kind of systems. Or you can basically say like, hey, there's an open network um, where anybody can join, anybody can buy specialized hardware to run computation and different kinds of like, things like that. And so you can you can basically have like different configurations, different specializations, and have like many, many different businesses compete in this market uh, versus kind of like centralizing again. So again, like we're in the first out of the first inning, you know, our belief is like these decentralized systems are a much better way of like growing the market um, than having like a few large providers basically specialize. Yeah. How did you get into this? Personally, I mean, what's what's the story? Because this isn't somewhere you just kind of land. 
Yeah, totally. So, um, so I was kind of like the first businessy hire at Protocol Labs back in 2017. So almost six years ago. So my my career path was like, you know, more in the business kind of world, right? Like I was, I was in consulting for a few years and private equity as an investor, did the MBA thing, did a startup, and we ended up selling it to kind of a large organization around, um, you know, it was like a sharing economy play for like large industrial equipment. And a good friend of mine in 2017 had been with Bitcoin and Ethereum since the beginning. He had joined one of the large crypto hedge funds. His name's Ryan Zur, just an awesome guy. And he basically dragged me by the ear and said, like, you are going to meet Juan Benet. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to hear a word of it. This company is like reinventing like the infrastructure of the internet. And like, you need to be a part of this. And Juan and I hit it off and I just absolutely fell in love with the mission to like upgrade the internet, to make it faster, safer, more resilient to attack, more open. And I thought, you know, it was only researchers and engineers in the company for the most part at the time. And so I thought I could say, hey, I could bring a different skill set to the table to increase adoption from like, you know, uh, millions to hopefully billions of users in the future. And the learning curve was steep, right? Like, I can't imagine. <laughs> you know, open source ecosystem development, crypto economics, like all the technical kind of like fundamentals, like lib P2P and IPFS. And that took many years, but it was such a fun journey. And now, you know, you kind of like are able to bring a different skill set to the table while also understanding the the roots of open source and, and cryptography and things like that as well. I mean, it's interesting. So Protocol Labs obviously existed before you were there. Right. And you got hired from this business space in 2017. This was an extremely ambitious vision. Probably most people wouldn't get it or care. Do you feel like in 2023, people still get it or care? You know, it's a great question. I, I think it's fundamentally different, you know, because like back in 2017, as you probably know, like, you know, there was the early adoption was still kind of early developers and speculators. There were no institutional capital in the space. There was like very few, like we'd never really crossed the chasm into the web two world, you know, into various industries. Whereas today, I, I really do feel like with NFTs, we crossed the chasm into like, you know, gaming and creators and artists. There are now like institutional investors that would like lap you out of the room in 2017 that are now like very active in the space. And a lot of the underlying rails are a lot more robust um, and, you know, accommodating for other, you know, different parties and businesses and investors that want to join. And so I think it's like fundamentally different. Now that said, like we have a lot of work to do to really truly cross the chasm at the scale that web two exists. Like, like I mentioned, like a Twitter or YouTube can't operate on web three tech today because scalability is not there. Right. But if we can get there and, you know, we've been working on various tasks to make sure that's um, very feasible from a storage and compute standpoint, you know, I think that's like really the next leg of, of web three adoption. And so that that's kind of what really gets me up every morning is like, how can we accelerate yeah. the transition from web two to web three and kind of get out of our little, get out of our own community to like bring other people in. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was the question is, you know, I think everything in the crypto space and the decentralized web three space, it is a bit of an echo chamber, right? I think that chamber right. increases in size, but even I, when I'm talking about this stuff, I find myself realizing that your average person doesn't understand what I'm talking about doesn't really care about these issues. I mean, you go to Bitcoin, they don't even care about their money, right? Maybe there's, and so it's even hard to explain that. 
So what do you think it takes for the average person, nothing to do with crypto, doesn't care to have some aha moment about centralization and data and all these things that are so important to us, but I think your average person still just is clueless as to why it's important. Yeah, I, I think it's um, both the rails and the language. So I'll, I'll give a personal story. Um, a few months back, I went to present at like a collection of like Web2 cloud storage analysts. So it was like media from the Web2 world, right? I started launching into my, you know, Web3 spiel and like, you know, why verifiability is important and crypto economics and like decentralization. And like five minutes in, like somebody just stood up and stopped me and they're like, Colin, I don't care. How does a bank in Idaho store their data on this that's like exactly, network that yeah, you're, that's exactly <laughs> that my you're question, right? About, right. And so I think it's up to us to, you know, present it very differently. Yes, the underlying protocol like Filecoin or, you know, Ethereum or, or Polygon has like very strong decentralization benefits, but the interfaces to the average enterprise or consumer has to be like tailored to that. So maybe. You know, it, it, I, if I could go back in time, I would pitch it as like, hey, here's the onboarding interface. Forget about the underlying protocol for a second. Here's how you would like drag a file yeah. and like UX use... UI, dude. Like, how, how do I, how, how can I just do this without knowing it's Web3? It's all abstracted away. I'm just dragging a file. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly. exactly the question. Exactly. And maybe you don't even call it file coin because that like scares off some fraction of Web2 users. Maybe you call it e store, decentralized storage, or something like that. Right. Um, and then you can back into like, hey, these are all the benefits. It's like less than 1% of the cost of cloud storage. It's truly verifiable. Users are in control of their data. You know, you're not locked into a vendor. It's censorship resistant, all that kind of stuff. So like, I'm still learning um, on how to interface with, with Web2 organizations and consumers. Um, uh, and I think that's like the next wave of like developers and applications. What they need to pay attention to is usability, not kind of like, you know, throwing the decentralization terms at the user. It's like how to make those interfaces and the language and, you know, super, super easy to, to understand. Interesting. I have these conversations all the time. And all we talk about is UX, UI for grandma, right? Like how right. is grandma going to use it? How is grandma going to understand it? But now talking to you, it seems like we should actually, that's where we should have started. <laughs> I think like the starting so. point should like let's build something that grandma does and then add all the you know complicated crypto stuff in the background. Totally, so we're trying to totally abstract I it away, but it would be interesting to start from uh, sort of the back. Yeah, I'm curious your perspective on this and like what you've seen from some of the other folks that you've talked to. Well, everybody, I mean, we all agree. I mean, that's exactly it. Is that okay? We've built this incredible thing. People who get it care. It's superior in a number of ways, but. I don't want to have, if I'm a person who's not crypto native, I don't want to have to go on Coinbase and buy ETH, open a MetaMask wallet, send ETH to my MetaMask wallet, understand right. how to store my seed phrases just to play a video game, right? Exactly. And, then, and then send, buy some other coin and send that coin through a bridge to a Ronin, a Ronin wallet so I can play Axie Infinity. I mean, yes, exactly. people played Axie Infinity because there was a monetary incentive. And I think that was the first example we saw of literal grandmas in the Philippines finding a way to do this because there was an incentive, but they weren't doing it because it was, you know, improving their life in any other way than the monetary incentive. So, I mean, that's the consistent conversation to me, the major challenge that we just find with everything is that your average person is not in this echo chamber. They're not going to do 
the hard work to secure their assets. And so they're going to mess up, right? So not only do they have to understand it, we have to make it so they don't lose all their money all the time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So that, that I think is the next leg of the whole Web3 industry is like, how do we enable that? And we're le- probably reaching the upper bounds of like early of adopters, early majority that like will go through the pain of doing all the things that you mentioned. Um, and now we got to like look at the problem a little bit differently um, in this next, especially in the spare market, but, you know, um, you know, going forward to, to get the next wave of folks to adopt. I mean, you're obviously institutionally focused, right? Huge platforms. Is there a way that your average person just uses this, you know, like a Dropbox or, and this becomes sort of the norm for your everyday person to store all their files? I mean, so many people obviously are backing up their computers or their phones, the basics. Totally. Yeah. So there's like lots of applications that um, integrate with Falcon in the back end where you can put your credit card in and charge like a dollar or so a month and like store all your files on decentralized tech. So Skiff is one that I'm a big fan of, Chainsafe Files, um, Fleek Storage, all these ones just have like super easy Dropbox style interfaces. They're fully encrypted. You're in control of your data. No one can ever get access to it. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them have like really awesome collaboration in a way that's like totally peer to peer. So kind of like replicating the Google docs interface. So it's, it's, um, it's really about like getting like really awesome, like founders and developers to like get to the point where they build some of these interfaces and abstract away the complexity of the underlying protocols. So what are the big challenges that you're tackling now? It was 2017 and you were looking at, you know, things that would come to market in four, five, six, seven years. What are we looking at in four, five, six, seven more years with this sort of exponential curve? Totally, totally. So, you know, I I think we've been following like a three-step plan for for the Filecoin network. One is like build the world's largest decentralized storage network. And we've largely accomplished that, right? 3,800 storage fighters, 44 countries, 13 exabytes of storage. It's now bigger than many web two public cloud platforms which is kind of incredible right yeah step two is like onboard as much of the world's information as possible and so we're off to a good start there a lot of work left to do but we you know we're up 27 times in terms of the data stored from the beginning of last year to today so we're we're on a good path there and then step three is like what we're launching this year which is basic basically bring compute to the data to enable web scale applications to live on web3 tech And so that started with the launch of smart contracts and user programmability on March 14th, which now opened up like this whole open data economy, which is like super, super interesting. Um, You can basically think of like the FVM as like the orchestration layer. It's kind of like the transition moment for like iPhone where they opened up app stores where anybody can build apps. Like that's kind of the foundational transformational moment. And so now anybody can build smart contracts, they can port over smart contracts from EVM and the Ethereum space, which is like super easy um, for Solidity developers, et cetera. And then we can enable like things like compute over data, um, cross-chain bridging, next generation scalability as a result of like that foundational step. And so for the next few years, we're like super focused on kind of like that additional value add of opening up a truly open data economy and bringing compute to the data so we can scale to the point where we can get a YouTube or Twitch um, operating on Web3 tech. Is it literally can be utilized with any 
layer one blockchain or layer two blockchain with the, the addition of smart contracts? Or is it still somewhat limited? And do you really need to be able to? Because I think some of them probably just won't be that successful or have that much adoption. Right, right. So we're, we're kind of doing it one by one. So the EVM and the Ethereum ecosystem was the first Obviously. one. And so, you know, FEVM is technically what's live, which is like, you know, it, people could write co contracts on Solidity and port them over with like minimal changes or anything like that. But we'll probably just start to go down the list and start integrating with Polygon and like others. So it's like a multiple runtime environment where you can integrate with like multiple chains. It's interesting that Polygon has sort of become the second in every conversation now. It's funny, right? Like, maybe it's uh, anecdotal. I don't know. Like, maybe that's just what I hear. But it used to be like, okay, we'll do Ethereum, then we'll probably add Solana, right? Because right. it was so hyped a year ago and such. But now it seems that Polygon everywhere. Yeah, we were. Um, we had. Uh, we participated in Phil Bangalore. It was like a big developer conference in India, and it was unbelievable. Like the enthusiast, like. I think it was like something like 10,000 developers that showed up. And a lot of them were like from the Polygon ecosystem. Like there are specific markets that like are totally underrepresented from my, even my viewpoint that like we're, we're now seeing like the, the excitement towards. So um, I think Polygon is like exposed that in India, which is really, really exciting. And we're, we're happy to support them. It's incredible how big this ecosystem is in India. It blow, absolutely blows my mind how much talent and how many programmers. Is that, I mean, outside, in, in general, where are you finding that the bulk of your programmers and developers are coming from? Are they all over the world? They're all over the world, but we're definitely making specific pushes in, in India. So we're going to have like a major kind of like conference there later this year. Um, we did one at the end of last year um, called Phil, Bang Phil Bangalore in Singapore that was organized by a few community members. And we were just blown away by how many thousands of developers showed up. So that's Crazy. been a pretty big market. Um, and then like uh, we're definitely targeting like North America and Europe, but we're also seeing pockets in Asia, like uh, in South Korea, Vietnam, Hong Kong that are starting to emerge as like first class like developer ecosystems. And so, you know, from... Our standpoint, we're trying to like really spread, you know, as as wide as possible. We have hackathons kind of running on a monthly basis in different geographies. Um, we have accelerator programs that are uniquely focused on North American developers, European, and then uh, Asian out of Singapore. And then we have like programs. Um, I'm not sure if you participated in Phil VC, but it's running right now. It's uh, the website is Phil VC, but it's basically 750 investors. 25 pitches from like founders within our ecosystem. And, you know, it's been an awesome way to get like whole global investors, like educated and invested in, in different startups around the ecosystem. So we're, we're trying to like, you know, prioritize, but have equal representation in different ge geographies for sure. So now the hard question, is there anything that can stop this? I mean, we obviously hear a ton about regulation, legislation, governments with aggressive or contentious policies towards crypto in general. Is any of that a concern for what you're building? I mean, it's also a catalyst for what you're building, but is any of it a concern for what you're building? Yeah, I'd be curious to get your take on this as well, you know, but like, it is disappointing sometimes, right? That there's like misinformation that, you know, you kind of like, because of a couple of scapegoats, you kind of cast a wide net over how the administration views crypto as like a total industry, right? But 
we kind of believe that like, hey, if you show real adoption, like that's kind of the way to like push through the noise here. Like, you know, we're storing genocide video testimonials. We're storing like large scale scientific data sets from CERN and UC, UC Berkeley. You know, we're storing like government data sets from like the New York City kind of like open data set exchange. And so are you, are you, you know, are you really going to come at like a network like this that's like storing these for cheaper in a verifiable way for like real users within the economy? And argument is like, hey, the more progress you show around that, like the easier it becomes to make sure that these things are are protected. Um, and then, you know, yeah. And, you know, like the banking system is super fragile as we've like seen, you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, like we want other parts of like the Web3 ecosystem to take that on so that, you know, um, financial assets can be a lot more secure in a verifiable way. But, you know, it, it's just like one big data related issue on the scale of like Silicon Valley Bank that would catalyze a lot more folks to take a look at, you know, our That's what I'm wondering. Is there some black swan event that like could just trigger a massive, you know, a massive wave of understanding and people coming in? Yeah. I don't know what that would yeah. be, but yeah. It, it's it's hard to know. I you know there was like different pockets. Like I thought the when the internet was like shut off by the government in Iran, that was like a big moment for us. Like yeah. oh my god, like this could this could literally like get off. Web two infrastructure is so fragile that you could just like lose access to like this basic human right, like the internet, overnight, right? And so we're you know those have been like interesting catalysts. Um, you know back in 2017 when I was first joining the um, Turkish government blocked access to Wikipedia, as an example, because yeah. Wikipedia was running all the sorts of stories about the administration. And they put those onto IPFS, like Wikipedia onto IPFS. And all of a sudden, in a peer-to-peer -peer way, everyone had access to Wikipedia the next day. And so there's like a, these few examples where, you know, you see pockets of like the fragility of the Web2 infrastructure that, you know, start to move like, societies or different types of users or even like um countries over to web3 tech and you know we haven't seen as many of those in the united states i would argue with respect to data um but you know it just takes one or two for people to to start to turn I mean, their heads yeah i mean look at north korea right or or even china right i mean china <laughs> they basically just created their own closed internet and and a duplicate version of every single platform that we have and closed off everything. And this could completely solve that. I guess back to the other question of what could stop it. It seems like nothing could stop the platform. The fear, I guess, would be that they come after the coin as a security or something like that, which can be dealt with, of course, right? That would just be going through the, the process or procedure of what, whatever it is. But that shouldn't affect the protocol massively, even if that happened just in one country, I would imagine. Exactly, exactly. I think like the bigger risk is making sure that the usability of like the tools are really tuned towards like a broad audience, right? Like AWS has, you know, a 15 year head start on their SDKs and their APIs, to like the application layer that makes it really easy for folks to adopt. And we're not there yet, right? Like I worry more about those kinds of like issues that prevent adoption versus, you know, something, something like of that nature. Is there anything I might have missed here in this conversation that you're dying to tell everybody about? Um, yeah, you know, maybe, uh, maybe just a plug for Phil BC, just because it's running right now. So it Please. launched 
on March 21st. It's a demo day for 25 startups uh, across the Web3 space, primarily building on Filecoin, IPFS, LibP2P, and stuff like that. They're incredible startups. There are 750 investors that are like uh, signed up to engage in the platform. And uh, they're, uh, it's like all the top investors within Web3 and increasingly Web2. So for folks that are out there that are interested like that, just go to phil.vc. Um, you can request a sign up because um, it's invite only. But we're we're trying to encourage lots of folks to get um, much more clean and visibility to the whole Filecoin ecosystem. And so that's been just an awesome, awesome thing to do. So Web3, Web3 Shark Tank. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, with FEM just launching, there'll be like many startups building on FEM in the next Philbot VC in a quarter or so. Uh, but we, we're already seeing like pretty exciting new kind of use cases that this like open data economy enables. So we're, we're super excited for the future. And where can everybody follow you after this conversation and keep up with uh, what you're doing? And of course, I guess, you know, start using the tools. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just Colin Evren uh, is my Twitter handle. And for folks that are interested in FBM, just because like that's been an awesome kind of pod for for developers, I just go to fbm.filecoin.io. We have a support team and a bunch of like hackathons, accelerators, um, and kind of like platforms that really make it easy for folks to join the ecosystem. Uh, and so fbm.filecoin.io is the, the place to visit. Awesome. I, my next uh, task is to check out Phil VC. So I'm going to go do that myself. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Colin, thank you so much for the conversation. I think it's exceptionally important what you guys are building and, uh, and that we get the message out there. Because like I said, I don't think your average person knows, but there is going to be some tipping point and some moment where people start to care deeply about this. Definitely. This was a lot of fun, Scott. Let's do it again soon. We will. Thank you, Colin. Take care.